Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Whoa, -ho. thank you. Thank you very much. We're delighted to have you here. Um, you know, uh, Madam Prime Minister, it's been raining here for 17 days straight, and it only stopped when you came. Now, I don't know if there's anything unique about that, but we're going to give you credit for bringing nice weather back to Washington. Thank you for coming. Thank you for being here. Thank you all for being here. Um, uh, first of all, uh, CSIS, we have a, for when we have outside groups that, that come to meet with us, we have a little safety uh, discussion. Uh, I'm the responsible safety officer. I'm going to take care of all of you. I'm going to take care of the Prime Minister first. But I'm going to come back for all of you, and I would ask that you just follow my direction if we do have to do anything. This door is going to be the best exit, and the stairs that go down to the street are right here. So just follow me. Uh, nothing's going to happen. We've got great security, and, uh, but I just want you to know we've got a little preparation and follow me if we have to. Um, this is an enormously important day for us because uh, for the first time uh, in Washington, we're going to commemorate a new center that focuses on the Nordic. And this is something made possible by uh, Bob and Lillian Stewart and the Stewart Family and Stewart Family Foundation. Uh, uh, I remember meeting Bob for the first time about a month after I came to CSIS, a remarkable man who dedicated his entire life to trying to make America a better, safer place. And uh, he was uh, appointed to be the ambassador to Norway, and in that capacity, uh, really helped at a crucial time to connect us in a very, very powerful way. And he stayed connected with Norway for all those years. So on behalf of the Stewart family, let me ask uh, Alexander Stewart, Sandy Stewart, to come up and just say a few words before we launch and hear the prime minister. Thank you, John. Uh, it, is, it is a great privilege uh, to represent the Stewart family and the Stewart Family Foundation at this auspicious occasion. Prime Minister Solberg, thank you so much for taking time out from a state visit to be with us this afternoon. Your presence does honor to my family, both the American and the Norwegian lines. My father's term as Ambassador to Norway was the summit of a lifetime of public service. As rich and as varied as other experiences were, nothing else he accomplished pleased him quite so much or left such a lasting, lasting impression. He loved Norway and its people. He was immensely proud to have played a supporting role as ambassador to a key NATO ally. He understood the region's strategic importance, Norway's strategic importance. It informed much of his life in Norway, and it touched his families on at least one occasion. During a visit to Oslo, I can recall that a Russian submarine was apparently nosing around where it shouldn't have been nosing, and Dad was called repeatedly to the embassy for briefings in what he termed the bubble, so named because of the protective cone that afforded protection against uh, electronic surveillance. And I can recall there was an extra layer of tension during those days, and even at social occasions. And I remember well meeting uh, some very fit, uh, very focused young men who uh, announced that they were commercial officers, and for some reason I suspect they were something else. <laughs> My father had a gift for friendship, and many of the people he came to know in Norway remain friends for the rest of his days. And of course, it was in Norway that he met my stepmother, Lillen. And their marriage was one of the great good fortunes of his long life. And given their shared interest in love of foreign affairs and their special affection for Norway, it is very gratifying to the entire Stewart family that Lillen's name will also be an integral part of the center's identity. Dad also had a special regard for CSIS, 
And here I can't resist sharing a remark my colleague Kathy DeWert found in Dad's copious files. This is a memorandum from 2002. And here he wrote, I like John Henry. He's a, gen he's a genuine guy with an excellent mind, but never a showboat. I like his honesty and directness. The bottom line is John and someone I think we can work with. And so, so we have over low these many years. But his admiration for CSIS uh, was not confined to the man at the top. He was always greatly impressed by the work done here and by the, the centrist and bipartisan spirit that this institution has long displayed. And so it seemed especially fitting that a research center dedicated to Northern Europe and named for him and for Lillen should reside here. The continuing partnership that we celebrate today would have pleased him deeply. On behalf of my family, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Sandy. We now need to focus really on the Prime Minister. So I'm only going to say one thing, that uh, it, it's widely known that Margaret Thatcher was known as the Ernest Solberg of the United Kingdom. <laughs> I, I introduce to you the Prime Minister of Norway, Ernest Solberg. Dear John, dear Heather, Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for your kind invitation to having me speak here at the CSIS today. It cannot be because I'm bringing uh, the sun here. I come from Bergen and our record is 100 days of, of rain. Uh, so, um, but as you heard John mention, I came directly from the White House and uh, very open, frank and timely meetings with President Obama and my Norwegian uh, Nordic colleagues. And we are here to discuss uh, issues and matters of mutual interest and to seek solutions to common concern. And there is no doubt that the title of my speech here today of Unity, Shared Interest and Common Responsibility perfectly fits the bill when it comes to the unique and very close relationship between the US and Norway. So there's no better place to discuss these uh, issues further today than here at the CSIS. Your institution continues to play an important part in keeping the issue of European security and the importance of transatlantic bonds high on the American agenda. So thank you very much again for the invitation. We are very proud that you, your president, is a Norwegian-American. We take great pride in it. And you know, you have understood, John, that you can trace your ancestors back to Voss and Granvin in the western Norway. And this is no doubt among the most beautiful parts of Norway. And it happens to be in my constituency. So it's... Uh, <laughs> but, uh, Friendly things aside, we have some serious challenges ahead of us. We are experiencing a more volatile and fragile security situation. We've seen a major shift in, security, in the security situation in Europe. Russia's violations of international law has caused great concern and continues to do it. At the same time, Europe as a political project forged by common interests and shared values, is being put to the test. The current discussions in the EU is not about further enlargement. 
is about how to prevent countries from withdrawing their membership. At the, and my key message today is a call for unity, with focus on the shared interests and common responsibilities. We need those countries that are like-minded to stand together in an insecure world. In practical terms, this means investing our, in our common security. Over the past few years, many European ministers have traveled to Washington, D.C. to underline that U.S. presence in Europe is still needed. Faced with a fundamental shift in the security landscape in Europe over the last two years, U.S. leadership is more important than ever. And we are therefore pleased to see that the U.S. maintains its strong commitment to allied and transatlantic security. The European Reassurance Initiative is one of several clear manifestations of this. And the, the situation on the security side in Europe has reminded us that we need to ensure better burden sharing. European allies are stepping up to their efforts. Last year, 16 NATO countries increased defense expenditures in real terms. It is important to maintain this momentum towards the NATO summit in Warsaw and beyond. And Norway is prepared to do its share. My government will continue to invest in security. This is the third consecutive uh, year that we have increased the defense budget, and we will continue to do so. And allow me at this point to share three key elements of Norwegian defense and security policy. It's the strengthening of NATO, it's collective defense, and it's cooperation and shared interests. And firstly, on the strengthening of NATO, we contribute to the alliance reassurance and deterrence measures. And we take a special interest in ensuring the long-term adaptation of NATO to a new security situation with collective defense at its core. NATO remains the cornerstone of our security policy. Still, we do not expect NATO to do the job for us. Unless we take our own security seriously, we cannot expect that the alliance will. The alliance strength and credibility rests on the principle of burden sharing and that each and every ally must be capable of defending its own territory and contribute to collective defense. Collective defense is the second element I would like to highlight. Article 5 is probably the best known article in the Washington Treaty. Still, this article presupposes that an article less referred to is in perfectly good shape. This is Article 3 of the Treaty, which set out the alliance obligation to maintain and develop their individual and collective capacity to resist armed attack. Norway has implemented measures to improve and increase the preparedness and the readiness for our own armed forces. And we will continue to adjust our defense plans in response to a more challenging security situation for the Alliance. The, uh, defense investment is a key element in preparing for these tasks. Norway is already spending heavily on relevant capacities, and we will continue to do so. We are well above NATO's 20% target when with strong focus on high-end capability investments such as F-35 fighter jets. 
The third element I want to highlight is cooperation and shared interest. One example is the need to ensure stability in the high north. Given our geographical position on NATO's northern flank and as a neighboring country to Russia, we have a special responsibility for ensuring stability in the high north. It's both in our own national interest and in the interest of the whole alliance. We have a long history of cooperating with Russia in the high north, even in times with tension and political difficulties. Predictability is the key to this type of cooperation. Predictable military presence in the high north ensures stability. Norma has stepped up its maritime presence in the region with submarines and maritime patrol aircraft. We are also increasing our intelligence capabilities. The Russians have done the same, but they know that we know that they know. <laughs> and, that's, and that's a very good principle of being predictable, that you are open and understand each other, even if there is an unbalance. And all of this greatly improves both ours and NATO's uh, situational awareness and regional understanding. However, this is not solely a Norwegian responsibility. It is a matter for the Alliance as a whole. This is an area where NATO and Russia interests meet, not just Norwegian and Russian interests. As an Alliance, we all have an interest in keeping this area stable and peaceful. Meanwhile, close bilateral ties with the US will also remain crucial. Our intelligence cooperation in the North is a good example of this. This cooperation is based on trust and a shared recognition of our mutual security. And it enables us to maintain a good situational awareness in the area and of uh, strategic importance. And I would also like to mention that the pre-positioning of US military equipment in Norway is important. Earlier this year, I met the U.S. Marine Corps during their participation in our national exercise called Response. This meeting confirmed our common desire to expand and further develop this long-standing cooperation. We had a good nearly 13,000 troops participating, Norwegians fighting the Swedes. The Swedes brought their military over to get experience them too. And we got a good cooperation together showing off how we can do warfare in an in winter, winter environment. Our close bilateral ties also ensures access to reinforcement when it's required. Between us is the Atlantic Ocean. We consider the Atlantic to be our lifeline. Europe's recent history bears strong witness to this. In fact, the today's situation often brings back the reminding of how important the Atlantic ties were during the Second World War. That time it was the lifeline to getting resources into Russia. It also showed the strategic placement of Norway. If you want to control the Atlantic Oceans, controlling the Norwegian coastline is important. That's why I think it's important to remember that uh, Norway, defending Norwegian soil is not just about defending Norwegians, but is also about defending the whole openness of the Atlantic.
Today, we are facing a military strategic changes that could jeopardize this type of lifeline. We must ensure the sea lines of the communication remains open for supplies and reinforcement in the times of crisis of war. This is why we have made boosting NATO's maritime profile a main priority in the run-up to the Warsaw Summit. Ladies and gentlemen, the need for continued U.S. support to transatlantic solidarity and European security with NATO at its core is as important as ever. Europe must take its fair share of responsibility and has done so for many years, not just in Europe, in Afghanistan. Today, several of the European countries are participating in Iraq, Jordan, and combating ISIL into Syria. NATO continues to be vital for promoting U.S. security interests, both politically and militarily. Our enduring commitment to transatlantic security is based on the principle of unity, shared interest, common responsibility. And beneath this, the fact that all the NATO countries are aligned on the same types of values and principle. We are fighting for human rights, the right to free speech, the right to self-determine for your own country. That's the basic core ideas that we have in common. It's essential that we expect the Warsaw Summit to demonstrate uh, even further solidarity in the years to come. We need a NATO that is prepared and planned for more difficult situations in the future. Thank you very much for your attention. Well, as a Norwegian-American, you make me very proud. Thank you very much, uh, Prime Minister. You know, there are, I think, nine million Norwegians in the world. Half of them live in Norway and half of them live over here. And that has fundamentally contributed to why we have such an, uh, an, an important and intimate relationship with each other. And, and Norway has been the greatest champion for transatlantic relations. But Norway's also distinguished itself by uh, championing European integration. Too. And frankly, we're worried about that right now. What, what are your thoughts about the strains and the tensions that Europe is enduring these days? Well, it's a little bit difficult for a prime minister in a country that is not members of the European Union to be the, in the forefront of the integration. Sometimes you just have to accept the voters in your country. Uh, not just sometimes, quite often should politicians do it, but uh, on this issue, the whole Norwegian political elite wanted to become members of the European Union and the people said no. But still, I think in Norway there's a, there's a strong feeling that the European unity is important because if you don't get a functioning Europe that delivers political decisions to the people of Europe, uh, you, will, uh, uh, you will have larger problems. I think one of the most challenging things when you look at Europe today is that the, of course, migration is the overall difficult issue for a lot of countries. If you see the elections in Austria, you see elections in uh, some of the local uh, regional elections in, in Germany, you see the rise of a more right-wing um, uh, uh, anti-immigration parties. You might say that's not a big difficulty for the integration of, of Europe, but the problem is that most of those country, those parties, not just are anti-immigration, they're anti-Europe. 
They are anti-integration into Europe. They are fiercely much more nationalistic, and you will get less common, uh, common policy and less common solutions. And, and, and that, is, that is a challenge. Today, uh, even if we have uh, the so-called four freedoms for people to move around, we now have border controls between most countries in Europe because of the migration yeah. crisis, because we are not managing to handle it. And, uh, and there's, when there's a need for a stronger European decision-making process, a stronger and tougher European uh, decision, uh, uh, there are too many countries in Europe now that feels it's difficult on their national political agenda and that they, they don't feel the problem the same way as other European countries are, so they will not participate. And I think this is undermining the whole European project. And of course, the whole Brexit discussion mm. goes into this, because with uh, Britain leaving, uh, if that happens, uh, there will be a setback for uh, common decision-making in, in Europe. And, and it hurts us also on the security uh, side. Uh, President Obama spoken quite quite on behalf of, I think, all Americans, that we really do want to see a, a healthy European Union. Mm -hmm. you, you know, Norway's decided not to join, but that was your sovereign right. But you also want a strong Europe, and, that's, and, and we do too. I think that's a very important thing. Mm -hmm. Forgive me, I'm interrupting just to say, I have three times failed to introduce Senator Mark Kirk, who was with us today, and he was such mm -hmm. a good friend to Bob Stewart. Senator, thank you yeah. for being with us. Thank you for being with us. Mm -hmm. Senator, you, um, Prime Minister, you, you spoke quite, quite openly about Russia. Um, yeah, I, I one time was up in Hirkenis, you know, mm. way up in the north, and uh, you know, all the, all the signs were, it was a military reservation, and all the signs were in Norwegian and Russian. I thought, that's pretty unusual, you know, stay out. And or, Sami, yes. And yes. Sami, so, mm. so it was, uh, <laughs> you've always had this very complex relationship mm. with Russia, a, kind of an intimacy because you share a border, mm. an intimacy because you share the Arctic. Um, you know Russians better than we do. Uh, and at the same time, you have had, you've been enduring a great deal of kind of um, provocative behavior from Russia lately. Mm. How, what's, how do you strike the balance here? Well, uh, first of all, yes, we, we are a small country with a large neighbor, with a neighbor that has um, ambitions and are big. We have this historic event, of course, that uh, the north of Norway was the only place the Russians left after the Second World War. They freed the two, one and a half large, uh, regions in the north, then they went back. There were some historians who said that that was a mistake, uh, mistake communication situation when we had the Jubilee uh, uh, two years ago. But, I mean, on the basis of the fact that the Red Army, in fact, freed the, the parts of the northern region, there's always been a local good, good cooperation between the Russians and, and, and local authorities in this region. There has, of course, been a total closed border up until the wall fell, but there has been uh, a good atmosphere in, in the work between, uh, between our countries. What we have seen is that we have shared, uh, we have shared common fishery resources. Uh, we have to manage that in a sustainable way. So we have managed, even during the Cold War, to, to build up different types of agreement on research uh, and rescue operations, on, on fishery management. Uh, they will sometimes provoke us, but on those lower levels, we have always had a good uh, cooperation. We, of course, see that they are, as I said, they are looking at what we are doing, and we are looking at them, and, 
and we are trying to get that to function well. The problem we now see is the Russia that last 10 years have military transformed itself. Mm-hmm. They used to have a larger military, but not very capable, at least around 2000. They, 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 they were not flying very much. They were not having enough resources to do it. Now that we see uh, very different. We, uh, if you take the example of uh, the uh, bombers carrying that flew to the Norwegian Sea down to Gibraltar, went into Mediterranean in November last year, and uh, in fact had long-range missiles that they shot into Syria, they, it was a show-off. They didn't need to do that long turnaround uh, that way. They could have just gone into the Black Sea, but of course they did that to show the rest of us that they are well-equipped and have the material and they are much better. Uh, what we see is that they can move faster, they can do things. We don't believe that they are a threat to us directly, but what we know is that if something happens in the world, this is a strategic important area. Most of their nuclear uh, naval equipment, mm-hmm. their submarines, are based not far from the Norwegian border. And if you remember the lifeline, the Second World War, into Russia, that's also their lifeline out. That means that we are in a way, in a way the territory behind them in the open sea in a way, that's where mm-hmm. they have a need mm-hmm. to control it. So we know where we are, that's why we never built down our um, intelligence and our work and our analytic uh, understanding of Russia uh, during uh, the time after the war fell. So we have continued and that's why we also have a good uh, intelligence cooperation with the US because we have kept on uh, trying to understand Russia. Uh, the biggest problem now is that nobody really understands Russia. I'm not sure Russians understand Russia because I think it's so unpredictable. Uh, I don't think very many would have said, uh, would have thought that the annexation of Crimea could happen. Uh, I don't think any analysts would have. It was, it was more of an, I think it was a small group that decided on something that was totally new. Even if we afterwards can interpret the speeches Putin have given and, and things he have said, that you should understand some of the things that they are doing in Ukraine, this bla- balance uh, break of international law, the security guarantees that they signed up in 1994 for Ukraine before they gave away their, their nuclear weapons, uh, and, uh, and um, all of that just went away in a couple of weeks, uh, in February, March, uh, 2014. And I think that's the biggest challenge we have, this unpredictability. You can do, uh, Cold War was uh, difficult. It was, uh, um, uh, they had high military equipment and, and you knew that they were, uh, that they had where there were possibilities for something happening, but they were predictable. No, they're not predictable. And that's, that's the, our biggest difficulty is, you know, mm-hmm. how do you plan? We don't assess them as a threat to Norway. They have never shown any ambitions towards that. They are, we do work, cooperate, but they are a big military capacity close to us. And if something happens, we are in their way. One of the things that worries us um, is that President Putin seems to require a sense of crisis uh, for mm. the legitimacy of the government. Do you see it that way? Yes, in a, they, they need type of crisis or in a way for a long time on, when they had high oil and gas prices, they could deliver welfare and, and economic development uh, uh, based on, on that. So they didn't need a crisis to do that. Uh, but he has, he has of course 
uh, made this stronger nationalistic policies, uh, clinging very close also to the Orthodox Church. Uh, uh, his uh, crackdown on uh, on uh, minorities, um, uh, if they are uh, gay, lesbians, or if they are uh, humanitarian workers, so all of that has been very fast and been increasing. But I think this crisis situation is also linked to the fact that they cannot deliver on the economic side anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, also, we are hit by the oil, <laughs> oil yeah. prices yeah. and all of that in our economy. But we have, we have, uh, we have a larger endurance because of a sovereign fund and our economic policies. They have to cut back on expenditure. And when you have a government who has been building popularity on deliverance, when they don't do that, then of course, having an external enemy having a crisis uh, can increase the popularity. And, 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 and Putin is popular in Russia. Mm -hmm. I think we can all look, look from the outside and say, how can they vote on it? How can they get those achievements? And of course, sometimes you get the election results that I remember my 13-year-old mm -hmm. son was discussing with some other guys that it was a great job to get 150% of the vote in some regions, <laughs> but uh, uh, they had never heard about that before. But uh, mostly, in fact, it's not, it's not Ford. He, he, he is getting majority of He's the Russians to vote for him. Yeah. He's popular. Mm -hmm. And it's difficult if, you, if you're in economic trouble, then of course, mm -hmm. uh, crisis is, is what you can deliver, mm -hmm. you know, be strong on. Is um, this pressure uh, that Russia is placing on everyone, really, mm. uh, you've felt it certainly, but so have other Baltic countries, is it bringing you more closely together in cooperating on security and foreign policy? Uh, it's, in, of course, it's, when I became Prime Minister the autumn of 2013, we were all in the discussion, why should, we have a, why should we have a NATO summit in 2014? What should be the agenda? Uh, I mean, we were going to go out of Afghanistan, uh, you know, dropping down, what, what's the agenda for, for getting all the prime ministers and presidents to meet on a NATO summit in Cardiff in September 2014? It took three, four months, and you had the annexation of Crimea, you had the, the, a totally different security situation, and suddenly the Cardiff meeting became one of the most important ones in NATO history, uh, because you have to really change it. And, and, and this is a long answer to say, yes, we are bringing more together. All of the countries are now understanding that you have to increase your capabilities, you have to work on new type of capabilities, and especially you have to work on cyber capabilities, because there's a lot of cyber operations yes. uh, going on. Uh, there is hybrid warfare, uh, meaning, in fact, it's, it's sort of information uh, warfare. Uh, they are now feeding into all types of conspiracy uh, thoughts that are around. They, uh, they, are, they are really working hard through their, what they call, troll factories to, to question all, everything that they can question uh, in, through social media, through all of these things. To, to make people unsure, is that true, is it real, is what they are saying, didn't the Americans really do that? That's, that's how they are working, and that creates an, also an instability in the population. Mm. Uh, and, um, and we are living in the age where nobody believes in anybody anymore, and, uh, yeah. and, and they are feeding into it. There's a very profound asymmetry uh, in this internet age, the social media age, because uh, democracies don't, can't speak unless they can, it's truthful. 
but propagandists don't have to have to be truthful. They just they just have to be impactful. So the, it's a standard of of uh, efficacy that guides a propagandist, whereas it's a standard of truthfulness mm. which guides a democracy. Yet that seems to me is still the foundation for, well, especially the Western culture. You spoke of this mm. in your speech about the transcending quality of values, Western values. Do you feel that that's being threatened by this propaganda? <coughs> yes, partly. And partly I think it's because, or I think all politicians also have to have an honest discussion with the voters and the electorate. Mm -hmm. uh, I think a lot of politicians have run on an agenda that we are gonna solve all problems if you just vote on me. Instead of saying that this is quite difficult. And if you look around Europe, you get more extremist organizations, uh, political parties doing good elections because there have been politicians who said, if you just voted on me, we will solve this economic crisis very fast because it's, it's the other government's fault. And when they come in, they don't solve it. And, and they forget the type of conversation and understanding of, with, with people on how difficult it is to turn around uh, economies and, 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 and bridging this. Uh, uh, and of course, it feeds into this uh, dynamic situation. I think, I think some of this is also to blame, I think, by uh, politicians who have not been good enough to make sure that people are participating in the economic development of their own country. Uh, high numbers of unemployment uh, at the same time as people get very rich is, is, uh, is a very potential of, of well, conflicts. Well, you are it's following uh, our political debate here mm, pretty closely. It's not uh, yours, but I mean, it's not it yours. It is ours. This, this was Greece, this was yeah, Spain, yeah, 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 this has been yeah. all of those countries yeah. that have had turbulent elections the last year, you have some of the same type of, of, uh, of discussions. And, uh... You, uh, in your speech, were very pointed to talk about the enduring value of NATO. Mm. And it's at a time when we're having serious American politicians questioning NATO. Again, I think your lecture to us was important. Mm. Uh, but we haven't appreciated the power of having allies as a foundation of our strategy. You're a bridge. Uh, Norway has mm -hmm. always been that link, you know, to Europe mm -hmm. and to America. Are you uh, are you anxious about where it's going at this stage? Well, I'm. I'm also. Every American election, European politicians become anxious. <laughs> I just like to for say for good that. reason. <laughs> no, but I mean, uh, I've 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 heard quite a lot of those, and I I'm in fact before I became prime minister, prime ministers can't go to to conventions. I've been both to the Republican and Democrats. I'm sort of. Uh, doubling up, so I'm sure I, I know somebody <laughs> afterwards. Uh, but uh, it's the nature of an election that, that your home issues becomes the strongest. And there's very often a campaign going on saying that, that you should do less foreign policy and be more at home. And I've watched presidential candidates say this and having turned into the office and just done foreign policy because the US can't get out of the fact that they are the biggest military uh, country, they have military capacity in the world, they are the biggest economic power, you will get intertwined with international politics and it's important. And today's world, global problems become your own home problems if they're not solved. When there goes off a terrorist bomb in Brussels or in Paris, it's because we have not managed to solve a situation with the ISIL in Syria and, and Iraq. 
So, uh, so there's no such an interlinkage between uh, national politics and, and international politics that had never been before. So I think uh, no, no president of the United States will be able not to uh, participate in it. Uh, and mm. then they will find out that NATO is important, uh, that their best friends are in mm. NATO. Mm -hmm. But of course, I'm always anxious. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, we're scared. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it, uh, the, the problem about this age we're living in is all of the really complicated problems are horizontal and all the governments are vertical. Mm. You can't solve these complicated problems unless you find ways to work with allies. And it seems to me the foundation that we built up through many, many years of this fundamental partnership with Europe is mm. indispensable for our future. And I think you've demonstrated that with your speech mm. today, Prime Minister, thank you. Thank Ladies you. and gentlemen, it is uh, my obligation to make sure that she has a chance to leave in time to get to the White House. So we're going to cut the questioning short at this page. I do want you to have just a moment to greet her if you have a minute, but then we'll have to get her out safely. So would you, <laughs> with your applause, please welcome <laughs> and thank Prime Minister Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.